I'm Mia Clark, and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street. Around 1916, droves of Black Americans began fleeing the rural South and traveled north to escape poor economic conditions, segregation, and racially motivated violence. Northern businesses had begun recruiting Black workers who were enticed by the prospects of better opportunities to earn a decent living and have a better quality of life they were told could be found in the North. This was part of the beginning of what became known as the Great Migration, in which about 6 million African Americans migrated from the South between about 1916 and 1970 to the North, Midwest, and West. Many Blacks who moved to these areas and regions earned dramatically higher wages than African Americans who remained and worked in agriculture and other industries in the South. Another benefit? Black Americans could also vote and move about more freely in parts of the North without fear of retaliation. In Florida and other areas in the South, initially the planter class and many white Southerners were happy to have Blacks leave. Later on, however, as Black migration out of Florida increased, the white Southern planter class worried it was causing unrest and dissatisfaction among Blacks who stayed behind. We'll explore more of that in future episodes. The dream of better opportunities African Americans seemed to be chasing did not last long in the North. Eventually, Northern whites began to express anger at the large numbers of Blacks moving into the North and the impact it was having on housing, communities, and jobs. They blamed Blacks for loss of employment and income. Racism was also very much alive and present outside of the South as well. As mentioned previously, the enlistment of Blacks who served in World War I and the return of those who refused to abide by racist, degrading, and segregationist social norms further inflamed white backlash and racial tensions. Lynchings rose dramatically and coincided with efforts to reimpose segregation following World War I. According to the Center for Constitutional Rights, between 1882 and 1968, mobs lynched 4,743 people in the U.S., over 70% of them African-Americans. Scholars, such as historian David R. Colburn, believe much of the racial violence experienced by Blacks during this time came from white backlash and resentment stemming from the Great Migration and the perceived disruption many whites believed it imposed on their communities across the country. How ironic that despite the facade of national unity behind the war effort beginning in 1917, many American communities with higher numbers of minorities and foreign-born immigrants experienced anything but unity. In a scholarly article authored by Colburn and published in the Florida Historical Quarterly titled Rosewood in America in the Early 20th Century, Colburn writes, quote, The superiority of the American way of life was not so obvious if one looked below the surface, and especially if one talked to Black Americans. Racial and ethnic tensions were widespread, and no amount of rhetoric could hide or diminish them. End quote. It has to be noted that the acceleration of violence against Black people, including lynching, following the end of World War I, occurred at the same time the Ku Klux Klan was seeing exponential growth. This fact is very important. The KKK first arose in the South at the end of the Civil War and focused on terrorizing Blacks to remind them of their lower class place in society. The Klan began to decline in the 1870s, due in part to the passage of federal legislation aimed at prosecuting the crimes of the Klansmen. 
However, in 1915, the organization began to reemerge in the South. After the end of World War I, the Klan experienced a national resurgence and local chapters of the KKK sprang up all over the country. By the 1920s, it had become a national organization with a strong presence, not just in the South, but in parts of the Midwest and across the northern United States. As the number of immigrants who moved to America from Eastern and Southern Europe, as well as Asia, expanded, so did the mission of the re-emerging Klan. Their focus now included taking a larger stance against not only Blacks, but also Catholics, Jews, Communists, immigrants, and organized labor. Klansmen claimed that foreign-born residents were taking jobs away from whites and diluting the imagined racial purity of American society, even though America had been populated by immigrants from the beginning. Black Cubans, non-Black Cubans, and immigrants from Spain and Italy were also victims of urban vigilantism during this time. The revival of the KKK in the early 20th century was in part a product of a deeply racially divided country that was struggling with the impact of industrialization, urbanization, and immigration. Throughout much of the 20th century, Florida had been a Ku Klux Klan stronghold. Here, Klansmen found friends in government who shared their racist, segregationist ideology. Many Klansmen occupied offices on the local, state, and federal levels. By 1925, the Klan had about 3 million members nationwide. But three years later, their ranks began to shrink to several hundred thousand and continued to do so during the Great Depression. In Florida, however, the Klan grew in numbers. During the Great Depression, Florida Klansmen boasted of more than 30,000 members. Their strongest factions could be found in Miami, Jacksonville, Tampa, and Orlando. Members of the Ku Klux Klan were often responsible for lynchings. While Alabama and Mississippi had the highest number of lynchings, from 1900 to 1930, Florida had the highest ratio of lynchings per capita. And per capita means the average per person and is often used in place of per person in statistical observances. In a 2015 Broward Palm Beach New Times article about Florida's high rate of lynchings, University of Florida professor Jack Davis, who's written about Florida lynchings, tells the New Times, quote, Black men were more at risk of being lynched in Florida than in any other state. Certainly, pure racism was part of this, though there are other reasons. As we've covered in this season, they include efforts by some white supremacists to stop Blacks from voting. They also include efforts to quash organized labor. With this backdrop, it becomes easier to understand why Davis notes that historical accounts back up Florida's reputation as the lynching capital. Keep all of this in mind as you listen to the rest of the episodes in this season. We examined how lynching was used as a tool of intimidation and voter suppression when we explored the Ocoee Massacre of 1920, and we explored the origins of lynching and its connection to the Ku Klux Klan in Season 1 during our exploration of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Let's briefly revisit that history, this time as it relates specifically to Florida. Here again is Dr. Paul Ortiz giving a lecture on February 19, 2009, when the Rosewood Traveling Exhibit was displayed at the historic Thomas Center in Gainesville, Florida. Professor Ortiz is the director of the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program at the University of Florida. This recording is courtesy of the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program. Also witnessed the invention of the modern motion picture. The most popular and technically sophisticated film in the age was D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation. How many of you have seen The Birth of a Nation? 1915. 
think about it when it, when it when it was first released, the impact that it had on popular culture was astonishing. People would get up in the middle of the film and 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 cry and 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 laugh and 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 it had such a visceral impact. No one had ever witnessed anything like it before in American history. The core of the film attacks African American political aspirations during Reconstruction, and it celebrated the Ku Klux Klan's assaults on black people after emancipation. It glorified the Ku Klux Klan. One famous scene, which I think is germane to Rosewood, depicted hooded Klansmen killing, killing United States troops in battle. An acceptable scenario to the general public because the troops were black. And so we had the first major motion picture in U.S. history in which U.S. troops are killed by the heroic Ku Klux Klan. Now that's an interesting, uh, interesting scenario to think about this, this time period. Birth of a Nation, in fact, was a, na was a white nationalist uh, film. It was uh, promoted on the 50th anniversary of the end of the Civil War. According to civil rights historian Philip Dre, the first modern motion picture in U.S. history, quote, carried Americans back to what now appeared to, as a simpler heroic time when a divided America had reunited and rediscovered its purpose by suppressing the minority populace in its midst. Birth of a Nation was based in part on Princeton historian Woodrow Wilson's A History of the American People. In 1915, President Woodrow Wilson heartily endorsed Birth of a Nation and marveled like the film is writing is like writing history with lightning. And the reason I mentioned Birth of a Nation is its impact on Florida was pretty profound. African Americans in every town and city in the state protested and tried to stop this film from being shown. Because whenever it was shown in the Upper South, anti-black riots would break out. White people would come out of the theater. They would attack the first African-American they, they would run into. It, it incited race hatred. And so if you read black newspapers of the time in 1916, 1917, you'll see African-American uh, communities in places like Palatka. Palatka was a town I mentioned in Emancipation Betrayed. They actually stopped the film from being shown for a while. Now, I don't know if they were permanently successful, uh, but the film did show in Jacksonville and some other, uh, most other uh, parts of, uh, of the state. But race riots, uh, it, it, lastly I'll say the, the birth of a nation, is it also helped spark the rebirth of the new Ku Klux Klan uh, at, at around the same time. The film was part of a larger mass media culture that routinely depicted anti-black violence as a necessary and even admirable dimension of U.S. culture. But race riots also fit within the histories of racism and colonialism in Western civilization. Philosopher Hannah Arendt observed that the brutality that culminated in the Holocaust was rooted in what she referred to as a long subterranean stream of Western history. Arendt wrote, when the European mob discovered what a lovely virtue a white skin could be in Africa, when the English conqueror in India became an administrator who no longer believed in the universal validity of law, but was convinced of his own innate capacity to rule and to dominate, the stage seemed to be set for all possible horrors, lying under anybody's nose where many of the elements which gathered together could create a totalitarian government on the basis of racism. <laughs> Thank you.
As we continue to explore this history, we're going to look at how lynching was not only a tool of terror and control, but also a response to the changing landscape of the country. While many of the lynchings involved accusations of Black men threatening the safety of or attacking white women, we must understand what the underlying issues really motivating these attacks of extreme violence were. Let's begin with several lynchings and an attack on the Black community of Perry, Florida, which is not far from Rosewood and occurred just weeks before the Rosewood Massacre. Most accounts agree that an escaped Black convict was accused of murdering a white school teacher named Ruby Hendry in the small panhandle town of Perry. Charles Wright and his accomplice, Albert Young, were captured by the sheriff and put in the jail. A mob formed and seized the two Black men from the jail. They beat Charles Wright in order to get a confession and implicate others before Wright was burned at the stake. Two other Black men were shot and killed during the search for Ruby Hendry's murderer. The mob also attacked the Black community in Perry and burned a church, amusement hall, and a school, along with several homes. It eventually seized Albert Young and lynched him as well. It is suspected that many in the mob belonged to the Klan, though none wore Klan garb during the attacks on Perry's Black community. For a complete understanding of the Perry lynchings and attack, we'll turn to one of the few experts in the nation on the subject, Florida State University professor Megan Martinez. My name is Dr. Megan Martinez. I am originally from Miami, Florida, but I've spent the last 20 years or so in Tallahassee at Florida State University studying racial violence and completing a, a doctorate in African-American history at Florida State University. I've continued to research and teach about racial violence. I realized today is the 99th anniversary of the Perry riot. Or You're right. It's December yeah. 1922. Yeah. So yeah, wow. How that is crazy so true. is that? What an opportune time to be talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, but that was kind of crazy to me because we were originally supposed to do it another day. You're right. We to, I guess it's meant to be. It is. <laughs> Speaking of Perry, can you okay. briefly explain the events on December 14th and 15th in Perry, Florida, that led to the deaths of Charles Wright, Albert Young, and two other men, as well as the destruction of the Black-owned property in Perry. Okay, so I'm going to start a little earlier than that because the story really starts on December 2nd, because the the beginning of this story really begins with the discovery um, that a young white woman named Annie Hendry had been murdered in Perry, Florida. And Annie Hendry was kind of a favorite daughter of the community. She was from a, a pretty prominent white family. They were preachers in the community. It was a family that had lived in Taylor County for a very long time. She was a school teacher. She was pretty well known. So the fact that this sort of prominent young white woman was found murdered in Perry is really the start of our story. What we know about the crime and the crime scene is that it was never really thoroughly or well investigated. We know that the crime scene was kind of trampled by reporters, by law enforcement. Law enforcement didn't ever do a coroner's inquest into her death because they said basically looks like she was bludgeoned to death. We don't need to look into it any more than that. So there's not a lot of discovery of evidence at the scene of the crime. They know that, again, a young white woman who is kind of beloved in the community has been brutally killed. 
From that point, every suspect that they look at and that they name is a black man. Some were people who lived in Perry, but were not from Perry. Some were black men who were kind of passing through Perry as individuals who were working there in one way or another. She was found near the railroad tracks. So some of them worked near the railroad tracks. And essentially what we have after the discovery of her body is a lynch mob is almost immediately going to form. They're going to call themselves a search party, but it's vigilante justice. These are not police officers. These are not people designated um, by the law to look for her killer. But essentially, white members of the community are going to take it upon themselves to essentially find her killer and avenge her death. And again, the only people that they're really going to be focused on looking for are going to be Black men. The lead suspect who they kind of end up focusing on is a man named Charlie Wright. Charlie Wright was not the first Black person arrested for the crime or or questioned over the crime, but the first couple men they spoke to, they had alibis that could be verified. So they let them go and eventually they're going to center on Charlie Wright. Now, why it's not really left in the record. There's not a paper trail that shows us why his name came up or why he's the person who they decide to focus on. He had been living and working in Perry, but he was not from Perry. One of the things we know about incidents like this of racial violence against Black communities and about lynchings is that as difficult and potentially dangerous as it was to be a Black person living in the South, if you were an outsider, a Black outsider living in the community in the South, it's going to be even more dangerous for you. Because if there are no white people in town to say, he's a good guy, I trust him, you're going to end up probably in a more precarious position when something terrible happens. And so a Black man who is not from the community, kind of seen as an outsider, he comes within the crosshairs of this mob. And he did what a lot of Black people did when they were accused of crimes, specifically crimes like murder, which is get out of town, which was probably the most rational response to being faced with being accused of this crime. Because the thing about lynchings, which I'm sure you've discussed in the past, is that evidence is not something that people waited for. Evidence is not something that lynch mobs needed. As soon as your name was used as a suspect, especially for the murder of a white woman, there's a good chance you were going to lose your life. So Charlie Wright flees. And at this point, white citizens of Perry basically form a vigilante posse and they start looking for him all over North Florida, basically anywhere around kind of that corridor into Southern Georgia. They're going to be looking for a Charlie Wright. Now we know that the mob is going to grow. It was reported that it became as big as uh, 5,000 individuals, but it was reported to be anywhere between, you know, two to 5,000 people. So they're spreading out in the area looking for him. Meanwhile, there are also white vigilantes in Perry who stay in the community. They say to protect the community. One of the things they're going to do is kind of just set up around entrances to the community and along roads that come and go from Perry. And during that time, another Black man whose name was Kubrick Dixon, he had no connection to the murder. Nobody had accused him of being involved in the murder, but he was coming home that day. 
And he was trying to enter town as these two white men it was their job to protect the city. They see him coming. They, they said they told him to, to put his hands up. They said he reached for what they believed to be a gun and they shoot and kill him. Unfortunately, even though we're, we're talking about something that happened almost 100 years ago, it's a story that we continue to see on the news. Kubrick Dixon had no gun. There was no gun found on him. The only thing that could have even been construed as a weapon was a small pocket knife. That's the only thing he had on him. So the first person, the first Black person to die because of the murder of Annie Hendry was Kubrick Dixon. Again, no connection to the crime. No one even accused him of anything. But he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was murdered. And neither of those white men were questioned, arrested, held, or in any way held accountable for the fact that they murdered this man for no reason. So the mob continues. To, the search is going on for days at a time. They did find a few men who they kind of accused of being Charlie Wright, but those men were able to prove that they were not him. They let those individuals go. And as it becomes apparent that this is not something that they are going to be able to resolve quickly, again, we see those vigilantes who stay in Perry start to turn their frustrations and their anger out on the local community there. And so we see other um, mobs form in Perry that go into the Black neighborhoods within the community and start burning down churches, homes, a Black school. There were reports of them essentially terrorizing Black families and saying, like, we know where he is, tell us where he is. And again, Wright was not from Perry. You know, he worked in that community and lived there at the time, but he was not from there. And they knew that. And I think that's something that made him vulnerable. But even though the fact that he was an outsider made him vulnerable, they still took out all of that anger and frustration on people who were from that community, people who they, they had known. So we will see the local Black community there be terrorized at this point. There were reports from the Black community of these mobs kind of running around with dogs and obviously guns and just setting buildings on fire because they were frustrated that they could not find the man that they were allegedly looking for. So then before they find Charlie Wright, they're going to find another man named Albert Young. At this point, the mob had made it to Valdosta. So they find Albert Young in Valdosta and they know he's not Charlie Wright, but it turns out allegedly that he knew Charlie Wright. Now, again, these things are kind of difficult to say exactly what's going on because with no legitimate trial and no legitimate testimony, we're working a lot on secondhand information. We're also working a lot on information reported by white newspapers which never look to a Black perspective, never talk to Black people. These, these white newspapers are going to report whatever the white mob tells them to report. So whether or not there was a connection between Charlie Wright and Albert Young, whether or not there was a loose connection between Charlie Wright and Albert Young, it's not 100% clear. But what we know is that they will arrest Albert Young, and they'll basically say, you have the, this connection to this man we're looking for, so we're going to arrest you. So he was actually arrested in Madison County. Perry, Florida is in Taylor County. Taylor County and Madison County used to be the same community, but they had split, I believe, 
during the Civil War, they became separate communities and Albert Young is arrested and taken to a prison in Madison County. Well, within 24 hours, the police locate Charlie Wright. So at that point, they bring both men to the prison in Madison County. Now, they're in Madison County and the people who are looking for them, the vigilantes, they're from Taylor County. So basically what the sheriff did at that point, a lynch mob coming for these men, allegedly he wanted to do his duty, fulfill his duty as an officer of the law to prevent a lynching from happening. So he tells this crowd that is now, this is when the crowd really gets to the thousands because people have gotten word that these men have been found. And he tells them, these men are in prison in Taylor County. There are officers there prepared to protect them. Do not do anything rash, just go home. And with lynchings, part of the story is often that these vigilante mobs go into jail cells. It's often reported that they overthrow the police officers, that they force the police officers' hands, that they steal their keys. These things kind of go either way. Sometimes the police open the doors and say, do whatever you're going to do. Sometimes police did their jobs and really did try to protect the lives of people who ended up in these circumstances. From what we understand, this sheriff, Sheriff Lipscomb, he was really trying to at least get these men to a trial. His effectiveness in doing that did not end up working. But from what we understand, he did at least try to fulfill his duties in this instance to send the mob elsewhere. But the mob is not convinced. They were from Taylor County. They were probably pretty aware that the guys weren't there. So they stay out. And the next day, the sheriff attempts to transport these men from Madison to Taylor. Again, there's one main road that connects these towns. So the mob knows where they're going to be. And as they go to transport these men, this is where the mob comes in, intercepts them, takes Charlie Wright, takes Albert Young. This is, again, when the mob is, is at the height of its numbers. And they take the men to uh, an area very close to where Ruby Hendry's body was found. And they're going to conduct what they consider to be their trial. Again, at this point, a lynch mob is judge, jury, and executioner. They have put themselves in charge of all facets of this. And they say that they're going to give the men the, the right to talk, to confess their crimes, so that this can be a legitimate proceeding. Obviously, there's no way that this could be a legitimate proceeding. No evidence is ever presented. And we really don't know what these men said at that point. Again, this is where we get back to the fact that this history is very much recorded in a way that preferences white voices and white memories. So what we are going to learn from white newspapers, local white newspapers, they're going to say that Charlie Wright confessed to killing Ruby. He's Some newspapers are going to say he confessed to robbing her, but not to killing her. Some newspapers are going to say he confessed to killing her, but said Albert Young had nothing to do with it. We basically get a number of different accounts of what happened here. Again, without a legitimate trial, without legitimate court documents, we have no way of knowing what these men actually said. But it's reported that Wright confesses to killing her, and he is then killed by the mob. He's basically tied to a pine tree. He was set on fire, basically burned at the stake. And there are reports that he was also shot and killed as, as the fire consumed him. At that point, 
the mob is going to allow Albert Young to be returned to custody. He's going to be taken to jail in Taylor County. At that point, there are going to be newspapers that essentially say, look, we're a great community. We only handled the, the person that did this. We acted in a reserved manner, and now we can all move on with our lives. Again, never mind that they've now burned down at least four or five prominent buildings in the in the Black community in their town. Never mind that they've lynched someone who was not able to stand trial. But they say the fact that they let Albert Young live at this point is, is a real testament to their character. Well, four days later, Albert Young will also be taken by the mob from the police. From what we understand, he was not kind of given the same opportunity to speak for himself. And they will kill him by shooting him as he was hanged from the tree. And after Albert Young is killed, that's when we see the violence kind of die down again, at least the mass violence on this level kind of die down again in Perry, Florida. It's so amazing because I guarantee most people listening to this and just most people everywhere have hardly ever heard of this incident. It was so hard to find any information. I had to read your thesis because that's really one of the only available comprehensive documents that talks about this. Mm-hmm. So to that point, you say in your thesis that the lynchings of, quote, Charlie Wright and Albert Young demonstrate how white memory in the South persists and overshadows African-American voice, end quote. You also said that, quote, the collective memory concerning the incident in theory provides a white memory that overshadows local Black memory. The prevailing voice concerning the lynchings of Charlie Wright and Albert Young, along with the murder of Kerbett Dixon, the first man that was killed, offers justifications for the violence done in Taylor County. In the case of lynchings in the South, Black memory has been overshadowed by a more forgiving white memory. Unless Black memory is specifically sought out, it is difficult to find, end quote. So can you please elaborate on this concept of what reality is juxtaposed against how it's shaped by those who are telling this narrative and the way they choose to remember it? Absolutely. So the first thing I'll say is that the reason why I wrote my thesis on this is because it hadn't been written about before. And the reality is for every incident like this that we know of, for every Okoe or Tulsa race riot, like there are 10 more that you've never heard of that I've never, that no one's heard of because so much of this is buried and it's buried by the fact that when you go look for evidence, right, if you're looking something up, you might go to an archive. Well, if the local archive is a place that has historically been run by white people whose families have been celebrated in the history of the community and who are racist, then that archive is going to reflect white history. And my dissertation talks about Perry, Florida as well. But it also talks about another incident in McClenny, which actually follows this very similar timeline that leads us to Rosewood again. But none of this comes together if I wasn't fortunate enough to meet and speak with Black families who trusted me with their words and their stories and, and at times their documents. Looking for Black history, especially in the South and especially in regards to racial violence, It's not something you're going to find in a white archive or predominantly white archive. It's not something you're going to find in white newspapers. It's not something you're going to find from local white historians. Most of these communities have 
for individuals who consider themselves kind of the story keepers of the town, the local historians. And at, at least in the communities that I've studied, those people have often been white men. And not only are they fairly uninterested in what Black people have had to say, but their characterizations of Black people in these communities are largely based on racist stereotypes. They're not relaying stories or narratives from actually talking to these people. So if you want to find Black history and Black voices, you have to talk to Black people. I was fortunate enough to find a, a Black church community who had kept a lot of records because they have one of the oldest Black churches in Taylor County. It's called Spring Hill Missionary Baptist. And they, again, in my experience as a researcher, the Black community keeps their own history records. I teach a thousand students a year, literally. And most of those students, if you show them something written in an old newspaper, they're just going to think, well, this is true. It was written. It's in black and white. Here's this document. And it's accurate. But the truth is that these newspapers that covered incidents of racial violence and lynchings and race riots, they reflect the white perspectives. That's why we even call them race riots, right? Like a race riot as a term makes you think that there are two races who are battling each other. That's almost never the case. Race riot, especially when we're looking at race history of the United States, is oftentimes a white community terrorizing a black community violently. That's certainly incident we have here in Perry. Because we live in a country that was built by white men and our narratives very much center around white men and the achievements of white people, if you're looking for authentic narratives of what's going on with communities of color, you're going to have to look outside of those spaces. Yeah. I almost cringe because I don't want somebody to come in on episode five and think like Mm -hmm. I'm trying to vilify white people. And I try to reiterate this as often as possible is that it's not so much about the race of the people. It's about what has been omitted from history, Mm -hmm. right? So like everything we know about Black history largely has not been, you know, told through our eyes, our perspectives. You're not an African-American person. So this isn't about all white people or this or all white people. It's about giving people a fuller picture, a fuller perspective, Mm -hmm. and considering the fact, what you say, that what we know might not even be the truth. Mm -hmm. It's not personal, right? Like talking about systemic racism is not personal. It just is. Talking about the way that racism is systemic just means, look, the country was built this way. It preferences white people. It gives opportunities to white people. Non-white people have been more vulnerable in our country's history. A white person listening to that should not take that personally. But what they should understand is that systemic racism is real. And there's tangible evidence to support its existence. And if you take that personally, you're missing the forest for the trees because it's not about you, but it is about the reality of our country's history and how that affects the reality of our country's present. Systemic racism continues to exist. And that's not about individuals. If you're a white guy in here, this is not about you as an individual. It's not personal, but it's about helping you understand the country that you live in and the ways in which opportunities are offered to some people that are not offered to others. And to deny that is just to deny facts. It's to deny reality. So yeah, it's not all these people are good, all these people are bad, 
But the reality is we live in a country in which systemic racism is real and it affects people in a very real way. And so that's why we have to take it seriously. And that's why we have to look at history to see the ways in which we've been affected by this. I couldn't have said it better myself. You mentioned McClinney. Can you tell me about it? (laughs) I'll try to give you a quick synopsis. But essentially, again, we're talking about the same timeline here, essentially, of of events leading up to Rosewood. But McClinney, Florida, this is closer to Jacksonville, but still along that kind of I-10 corridor. Very similar community. A big industry in McClinney was turpentine. And in Florida, a lot of turpentine workers were convicts and they used convict lease labor. So essentially, if the police arrested you, you were probably going to end up working in a you know turpentine woods somewhere in very terrible conditions. There was a local white man who was killed by a black man who was working in the turpentine pine woods. And that man, man was oh, killed by a black man. Yes, this we know. That is that is true. That is not disputed. We don't know why he killed him, but essentially, he kills this white man, and with him are, are two of his brothers and a friend of his, all black men. He and his brothers had worked for this turpentine company for many years. Like his family had worked for them. The man who killed the white man, he takes off. Everyone takes off, but the actual person who committed the murder. We never see him again. Like he is never caught by the mob. Some people say that maybe he left and then secretly slipped back into McClenny years later. We don't know. But again, we see these white mobs form. The man who was killed was kind of the foreman, was also one of these figures of like this young white guy whose family was from the town. People were very upset that he was killed. And they do a very similar thing to Perry. They go into the black community in McClenny, which was sort of separate, very segregated communities, even though it was not like legal segregation, but it was just the way the communities developed. They go into there, they start interrogating people. There was one story about them going to his family home and saying, we know you have him here. We know you're hiding him. And his family said, he's not here. You can come in, you can look, he's not here. Well, he was not there, but they will kill the family dog and burn down the house on their way out. And the other men who were there at the time when the white man was murdered, they will end up being arrested. Now they were never accused of a crime. They knew that they were there when the murder happened, but no one thought that they killed this man. Well, all three of them are going to be taken from the jailhouse out into, again, these pine woods. And in McClenny, there was a triple lynching where all three of them will be tied to pine woods, set on fire and shot to death in front of, again, like a a crowd of I'm not sure if it got up to, you know, the 2,000, 3,000 people range uh, like Perry, but it's probably about 1,000 again. And they never find the man they're looking for, but the triple lynching that took place, th- those men were never even, no one thought that they killed anyone. It was literally their proximity to a crime and the fact that they were Black that led to them being lynched in a triple lynching. So unfortunately, these incidents are not atypical. These are not outliers. And a society that allows lynchings to take place, a society that allows this to happen without holding anyone accountable, right? Part of lynchings is that they would say they happen at the hands of persons unknown. So no one's arrested. No one's questioned. None of the white people are ever held held accountable. That is, again, a sign of systemic racism. Can you even fathom living in a country where a white man murdered someone and 
then his three friends were lynched simply for being there by the black community. I mean, that would not, I don't think that would stand. I think people would go to trial. People would say, well, just because these guys were there doesn't mean you're allowed to murder them or pull them out of their homes or burn their homes to the ground. But we never see these lynch mobs, these vigilantes held accountable. And actually in McClenney, if you go into the courthouse in McClenney, there's a mural, it's a huge mural. And in one of the corners is the KKK. And they're like, the Klan is memorialized in the courthouse in McClenney. And again, we have a situation of local historians. There was a you know local white man named Eugene Barber. He's like, I'm the local historian. I'm gonna also paint this. And he said, it's not there to celebrate the Klan, but they are a part of our history. So they do belong here. And it's like, when you walk into a courthouse, a place where you are supposed to be in front of the law as an equal citizen, and there's a mural depicting an extra legal vigilante organization, white supremacist terror organization, and you are a black resident, you still have to walk into that courthouse if you need to, I don't know, pay a fine or get a divorce or just conduct your business as a citizen. And that's still up. You and mentioned that for... happened at the same timeline as Perry's. Mm-hmm. And what were the dates in McClinney? It's within a year and both of them prior to Rosewood. Gotcha. So I think what you're saying is it kind of goes into the theme of what we've been talking about is this idea that Black people, they tried to access full citizenship, right? But mm-hmm. they were never given that opportunity and certainly not during the first 60 or so years of the 20th century. So what happens is they never had full protection under the law, right? And Absolutely. I mean, how do you live in a place when that in any moment somebody can come in and accuse you of a crime with no evidence and no witnesses and take you and lynch you? Right. Exactly. Yeah. But in Florida, we have Jim Crow, we have segregation, we had, it's what Ida B. Wells Barnett said, which is like, look at the economics. When you see Black people starting to do well, when you see Black people start businesses and accumulate even a little bit of wealth, let alone something like Black Wall Street, right? There is economic anxiety because as soon as black communities start proving that they're just fine on their own, we see that anxiety creep in and we see retribution for that. White businesses didn't want to compete with black businesses. So you prove that all the things they're saying about your communities are racist, that they're racist stereotypes. But as soon as you prove them wrong, well, now you might be in trouble because if you're competing with them economically, there's a good chance there's going to be retribution for that. And it's very easy to say he raped someone or he killed someone. And when a lynch mob forms and there's no trial and there's no jury and there's no evidence, it takes very little to ruin a community, to take everything away from someone, even after they started with nothing. It goes back to systemic racism. It's not even about just the individuals. It's about like protecting white supremacy. We don't want to have this kind of competition. We want Black people to stay in their place. And if they're not, then there's going to be real consequences for that. Okay, finally, because obviously the center of this season is what happened in Rosewood, but using Rosewood as a lens into life as an African-American person, as a Black person in Florida during this time. So I just found it really interesting that the incident in Perry happened just several weeks before Mm -hmm. Rosewood did, several weeks apart, 
not that far apart from each other. And I wondered if you found this unusual because you've studied violence in the context of racism and racial animus. You said that the violence in Perry in December of 1922 became national news at the time it occurred, which might indicate that there's a chance people in Rosewood, Black or white, in Levy County, at least, were aware of it. So what does it say about race relations in Florida during this time that these events were occurring, as you mentioned, far more frequently than we know today or are willing to admit, and that people just felt like this was almost a part of life, mm-hmm. you know, just a part of their reality because it was almost so normalized. Yeah. Most lynchings per capita in America are in Florida. Not hard numbers wise, but per capita, we have the most in Florida. And I think that speaks to a number of things. A lot of this violence begins in the 1920s, right? It culminates in 1923 with Rosewood, but a lot of it begins in 1920. Well, that's the first election we have where Black women are allowed to vote, allegedly, right? Supposedly, they're supposed to be allowed to vote. So suddenly we see I mean, Floridians, but people all over the country, but particularly in Florida, people having a lot of anxiety, white people having a lot of anxiety about the Black vote. Not only were we dealing with Black men voting before, but now Black women are voting. And oh my God, now we're going to lose everything we have. And in Jacksonville, you see the Klan marching on voting day, specifically to discourage Black people from coming out to vote. There was one incident in uh, a newspaper reported of a, a white politician who said, like, the problem is always Black women. Whenever we see violence in American communities, it's because of Black women. And what we need to do is create a separate entrance for Black women to vote and Black men and white men and white women so that none of them ever see each other when they're voting because the problem is always Black women. And it's like, what group has almost been victimized more than other groups in this society, in our country, than Black women. And here this person is again using them as just like exploiting Black women again, like making them blaming. Yeah, it's like the Malcolm X Club. It's like we see it here again, that Black women are always targeted. And so we see from 1920 on like this very real anxiety about Black women voting, about Black people voting. We see in Florida, we don't see the kind of economic booms that we see in other places. And again, anytime where you have economic anxiety, especially in rural communities, especially when you're in a state that allows something like convict lease labor, where essentially you can arrest a Black person for anything. Now, once they're arrested, they're forced to work in things like turpentine camps where they're essentially living almost like in a jail cell, but worse, because they're also being forced to go work in freezing, muddy conditions, not being given food. Like people were taken better care of in jails than they were in these turpentine camps. So it's voting. It's that economic anxiety. It's the fact that in some ways, Florida is like the wild west of, of the South. In some ways it still is, right? Also during this time in the 1920s, we have Governor Sidney J. Katz, who was, he was literally called the cracker messiah. Like he was a governor who was like, I am here for white people. Before the KKK had a chapter in Florida, they supported Sidney J. Katz and his run for office. And then they were like, oh, we got to go into Florida and have more Klan members there because we got to support this guy. When the NAACP approached him about lynchings in Florida and said, you have a real problem in Florida, 
he said, why don't you talk to black people? Black people stop acting up, then maybe this would, would stop happening, but don't bother me with this. And he carried a gun on him, pistol on him at all times and reminded people he would not hesitate to use it. He was from Defuniac Spring, which is also along that I-10 kind of corridor, a little further west than what we've been talking about. But Florida was, it was like the Wild West. There's an issue of the crisis where they talked about two young men who were lynched, two young black men who were lynched in Tallahassee down the road from the Capitol. And the newspaper literally says, I'm sure nothing will happen because that's Florida. So I don't know. There was a, a, there were a lot of things happening simultaneously. And, and the um, crisis, just to clarify, that's the crisis magazine. Yes. W.B. Du Bois. Yeah. Oh, w. Uh, w. We have some of our most prominent early civil rights leaders come out of Florida in places like Jacksonville. So they're there fighting that battle. But I mean, it's obviously was and continues to be an uphill battle. And we see these racial violences in Orlando and Ocoee and all the way down to Miami, we see lynchings. So it wasn't something that was just relegated to North Florida or to rural Florida. But I think certainly in rural Florida, we get a lot of the economic anxiety and a lot of just kind of closed communities. If you have hundreds of convict lease laborers in Pinewood, forest. Like no one's there. No one's looking, no one's walking by. And the only reason why that particular situation in McClenney came to an end was because the police arrested a a young white guy who ended up there. And as soon as he got out, he told everyone who would listen about what happened to him, these turpentine camps. And then it was on newspapers and they were like, Oh my God, this is like a, like a, a death camp. But why does it finally get that press? It's probably because it was a white guy who came out and told people. People were like, well, that's terrible. Nobody should suffer that way. But it's like, well, a white guy shouldn't suffer that way. So now we care. Yeah. I also wonder if part of it, well, vigilante justice was also a part of most communities in what we call the United States now at that time. But sure. For a very long time, even when Black people were leaving other Southern states like Georgia and escaping to St. Augustine, it was seen as sort of like a safe haven, right? Like it was not as developed as other states, right? And so I think a lot of Black people felt like, oh, we can make a place for ourselves because there's more opportunity for us to sort of start from scratch without like encroaching on somebody else's territory. And then Florida was ruled by several different crowns for a while as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it almost seems like a different culture. You know what I yeah. mean? Well, I think part of what you're getting at there too is like Florida, like before the Civil War and after the Civil War is almost a different place. And I think a lot of these economic anxieties that I'm talking about, they're coming about after the Civil War and these communities trying to figure out how to rebuild and how to like get their economies moving again. And prior to that and certainly prior to Florida being part of America like that was more when it was this place that was a little more maybe held potential to get away and we do see like enslaved people escape and and be welcomed into Seminole tribes and Miccosukee tribes and like places like that but as you know we move closer to the Civil War and then after it I think that's when it becomes like a very different situation because now people like Sidney J. Katz are in charge and the Cracker Messiah is looking out for his people. So yeah, I think there was a definitely a time when it was seen more that way, definitely when it was more Spanish Florida, but it, it really starts to change after the Civil War. 
In the next episode, finally, what all of these episodes this season have been leading up to. Rosewood, the thriving community of African-Americans and the happy place many survivors of the Rosewood massacre describe it as when they reflected upon their childhood. Rosewood wasn't just the site of a horrendous atrocity. It was also a community of proud people who started with very little and made a decent life for themselves considering the times. It was family. It was home. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform, and check out our website, www.dreamsofblackwallstreet.com, where you can subscribe and keep up on all of our latest episodes. And for my history podcast fans, might I make another suggestion that you may enjoy a podcast called Pontifax, and in the words of the creator, quote, a lighthearted, only slightly blasphemous papal history podcast ranking the popes from Peter to Francis. Mm-hmm.